You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7. Brave new radio. We got managers, producers, record labels, concert promoters galore. Wednesday at 8 p.m. Professor David Kerfield, along with Dr. Stabon. Marconi, yes. And this is going to be one amazing, incredible episode of Music Biz 101 and more. We have a very special co-host with us today. He's, his name is David McNally. We do not call him Dave, although I always call him Dave, but you are to call him David McNally. <laughs> David, you are getting your MBA in Music and Entertainment Management at the University of William Patterson. Yeah? I am. I uh, am. Just finishing my first year there. And it's been the best year of your life? Uh, before pandemic, yes. <laughs> Marconi is losing his internet. So as he goes away, um, I will remind everybody that is listening to make sure that you are going to musicbiz101wp.com, signing up for that newsletter that comes out every Wednesday, which tells you about the next radio show that we have coming up. It also tells you about the podcasts. iTunes and SoundCloud is the place to go. And you should also do the following, do some following of us on the Instagram, the Twitter, the Fashion Book. You can find me on LinkedIn, Professor, no, no Professor. There I'm just David Philp, I believe. And let's see, we have Dave McNally. We are going to have a guest with us today. Dave, uh, our guest is going to be who? Our guest today is John Hammond. He is the Director of Marketing and Digital Strategy at Missing Peace Group. Uh, based in Newark, um, also have offices in Seattle, Nashville, and I believe an office in New York. Okay, very good. And then um, John will be with us. But until we get that, Dr. Esteban, should we give some thanks? Okay. So here we go with thanks. We're going to give thanks to the folks at Van Dyne, Bruno Link, and White Hat Management with artists like Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, St. Vincent and Kiss. There's only one place to go for your band's business management. Go to VB CPA.com when you're ready. We also want to give thanks to Christine. Oi. They, a wealth manager at the Forefront Group. Christine has helped many professionals at the University of William Patterson manage their investments and plan out for their retirement. When somebody like you is thinking of building a bridge to your financial future, think about the Forefront Group and go to Christine. Oi. They at Forefront.com. Dr. Esteban, how Leave great is off for savings. I shoot. I am very upset for not letting you leave the last oil off for savings, and that's what you're doing. And University of William Patterson, William Patterson University. It's one of the best in the world, is it not, Dr. Esteban? Oh, yes. Even with the pandemic. It is still one of the best when you talk about the music business program, at least which has been ranked by Billboard three years in a row as one of the best and four out of the last six years. 56.6% of the time, we're one of the best in the country and we're proud of that. Yes, Dr. Esteban, you agree? Yes, I do. Yes, he does. So I'm leaving the program in very good hands. That's right. And, mm. and that means he is leaving the program. Dr. Esteban is quitting. Okay. Yeah, and why are you quitting? Why, are you, why have you decided to quit, Dr. Esteban? Long enough. <laughs> <laughs> Long enough. 
Is it the right yeah. time to quit, you think? Probably the best time to quit. <laughs> yes. Because we know nothing. We don't even know if we're going to be in a classroom. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you'll be just on your deck while we're figuring right. out. And we'll be done. And you'll be done, though, you know, by Thanksgiving. Yes. It looks like. Uh, All the choices lead to the end being Thanksgiving. Yes. So as we eat our turkey in a very healthy manner, meaning there will be no bacteria in the turkey and no bacteria floating around the air at that point. Mm -hmm. Be safe and secure knowing William Patterson made the right decision with their opening and their closing. Okay, so... So, okay. so Dave, McNally, Dave McNally, give us the uh, auto bio without the auto, the biography of John Hammond, our special guest today. All right. So our guest today is John Hammond. Uh, he's previously held roles as Director of Marketing, uh, VP of New Media and Interactive Marketing, as well as a consultant with B3 Mediascape. He has worked at Ryko Disc, TVT Records, CMJ Network, uh, Wind Up Records, Sony BMG Music, uh, I already mentioned B3, The Muse Box, and is currently working as the head of marketing at Missing Peace Group. Mm-hmm. as well as the talent buyer for Outpost in the Burbs. Hello. All right. Start asking him all sorts of personal questions that make him embarrassing. This is definitely a gotcha type of interview, so we want to yeah. use this against um, him in the future. So I'm mostly interested in, so when I'm looking at your LinkedIn, it, like your first experience at Ryko, like you're already director of marketing. Um, do you have any experiences before you end up at Ryko Disc? Uh, I was working with one other independent label before that, um, which didn't quite earn being on my LinkedIn page. As there were a number of things on there, but um, I sort of, I showed up in New York, um, you know, to get into the music industry. And I do feel kind of lucky that I ended up on the independent label side um, just because it was a great opportunity to honestly learn by doing and, to dive in there and um, just, you know, get a sense of how things had worked in the past, but also um, there weren't a lot of rules and there weren't a lot of uh, people involved. You know, I had one boss and his boss owned the company and we were talking all the time and we were working with directly with the artists. And that's kind of, you know, that's the approach that I've always taken, you know, ever since then, several several jobs and a couple decades later. Okay. Um, you also, you describe your experience at Ryko Disc as an amazing place to get some of my early experiences and expertise, uh, helped to build the company from the ground up as one of his first employees. Um, it sounds like you had a very positive experience, but what were some of the challenges of working for a company that is still being established, like still like on the up and up? Like what are the difficulties so in the early days, um, and yeah, I believe I was the third person hired in um, the main marketing and, and uh, promotion office. I mean, in the early days, we were just establishing the company and, and trying to build a reputation both within the industry, uh, with consumers, which went back to, we need to, you know, the, the company started largely as a catalog and reissue organization. It was the, it was honestly, it was the early, the early days of the conversion to compact discs. And um, the guys who owned the company had made some very smart um, licensing agreements early on to where, you know, they went directly to Frank Zappa and, and his business team um, and licensed all of that material. Because I mean, as they, as they describe it, in their first meeting, it was four, four partners who originally started the company. Um, and in their first meeting, they had kind of, they had identified a building market for compact discs and were sort of quizzing each other on, well, what are some great catalogs that aren't controlled by, at the time, any of the six major labels? Um, and so settled on uh, a few possibilities, but the Frank Zappa catalog was one of the most meaningful um, catalogs that was currently available and licensable. And so um, from there, we just, you know, we 
made a point to, you know, do to take the time and put the effort and the work in to create good repackaging and good uh, catalog releases and not just kind of, at, I mean, at the time, you know, the early CD conversions, uh, a lot of them were pretty slapdash. They weren't made from very uh, early generation masters. They weren't, they weren't putting a lot of time and effort into the artwork or the special packaging or the special programming. And we were, you know, we always, we made a point and we said this to each other and we held it, held each other to it. Um, we were approaching these releases from a, um, from a fan's point of view, not from a label business point of view, you know? So we were thinking, well, what, what do people actually want from these? So the company, I mean, you know, they hired me in my mid twenties to head up the marketing side. Um, we hired a lot of other people who were music fans first and, you know, who had kind of demonstrated that by working at record stores, working at radio stations, rather than, you know, people with a lot of technical experience within the label community. The, you know, the next big challenge was that you couldn't maintain the whole company just based on finding interesting catalogs to reissue. So we made the move into developing new artists as well. And, always approached it selectively and strategically, but um, put a lot of work and effort into those campaigns that ended up on artists like uh, Mold and Sugar, um, Morphine, Golden Smog, the guys from um, Soul Asylum and, and uh, Wilco, I believe. Uh, hope, I'm, hope I'm getting the history right. It's been, it's been a little <laughs> while, but um, you know, I mean, as I mentioned in my bio there, and I haven't really thought about it in a while, you know, that was a great experience because we were, you know, it was a core group of people who believed in the mission. And, you know, we were trying to do things a little differently from other record companies that, you know, either just, you know, there's a model of independent label where, you know, you can you do one thing very well and you put out one kind of music very well, um, and you believe in it and you connect very closely with a certain audience. Um, obviously I'm wearing a sub pop t-shirt today. Just that that's a, that's a good example of that. Um, and then, you know, the typical bigger label model is, well, we do a lot of things. We don't build a particular relationship with an audience, but we have developed clout within the industry and we also will spend money to support um, our projects and, you know, invest in the marketing. And we didn't really have either of those options available to us at a great level, but we were still trying to compete um, to have successful projects. And we were just trying to do that through smart marketing and through what I came to realize later was essentially branding the company as, you know, people who cared about music and who cared about the quality and, and um, we're trying to, have fun along the way. Well, it's, it's interesting at that time because I, when you were at Ryko, I was a polygram and um, I would go into my job was going into retail and Ryko Disc had a brand that polygram had no brand. You know, it was mm -hmm. only Phillips and nobody cared, but Ryko Disc definitely um, had something to it that like, like you said, you're wearing a sub pop t-shirt. It's one of those sort of iconic label label groups that, especially from the 90s that people do remember because it stood for something yeah and that, that that has ended up being a great experience and i'm still in touch with almost every one of those folks and you know one of the guys who was doing it is now writing a book on the history of the company and it was a great thing to go through and i i really look back and value that um so your bio on missing piece on the website it lists that you pioneer techniques techniques such as band widgets social networking and music, user-generated content, and direct-to-fan marketing. Of those four techniques, what would you say you're like most proud of? Um, I, looking back on some of the, well, honestly, it's the early internet days that a lot of that is addressing. And, you know, I, I moved over to a focused digital marketing position um, I guess in the year 2000, um, when I was working at Windup Records, which uh, 
again, a aggressive, success-oriented, independent label, which, you know, I tended to find a few of those companies. There weren't that many of them. Um, but, you know, the, the, the management there, the ownership, um, wanted to support people who had some interesting and slightly off-the-wall ideas about how to reach fans directly rather than going through the traditional gatekeepers of Rolling Stone magazine and album rock radio and, and what, whatever those were. We, were. we were kind of doing both those factors. We, the company had a big digital, what at the time new media it was called, department. Um, and we also had a big uh, radio promotion department. So we were um, taking care to meet both sides of that, that equation. Um, but, you know, that meant, again, we were working directly with the artists. We were managing their websites and we were trying to come up with interesting and creative ways to bring music to market um, that touched fans directly. And this is, this is before MySpace and Facebook and, um, you know, e-cards and a lot of those things, those mm -hmm. techniques got pretty well established and routine, routinized, I guess, is that a word? You guys, mm -hmm. uh, you guys in academia? Um, <laughs> um, but so, you know, an example in, I want to say it was 2004, we were launching a band called Seether. There's a hard rock band. They're still, they're still going. Um, their first album cover was a various photos of different people. We actually did several different versions of the cover. Um, back, back in those days, you, you could do that and you could, you had it like a custom uh, album cover for Tower Records and another one for Barnes and Noble and whatever. Uh, but the, the imagery on the album cover was people holding up signs that expressed their actual, the things they don't say out loud, their, their real thoughts, their, their honest emotions. Um, and I saw, you know, I saw that image and I realized, oh, that, that's a website. That's, you know, we should, we should um, enable people to post photos like that and express themselves. And again, I, I guess MySpace existed at the time. Yeah, um, if I'm remembering my sequence right. Um, but we weren't really doing a lot with, we weren't really changing what your messaging was on MySpace. I, if mm -hmm. I'm remembering right, you know, you would kind of pimp up your MySpace page, but then it would just be there. Um, whereas, you know, I saw this and I thought like, oh, well, this is a great way to let people sort of, again, express the thoughts that they don't say out loud that much. So, I, you know, we worked for a few months and we had flash designers on, on staff and we, I kind of challenged them to say like, you know, okay, well, let me post a photo and then create a system where they can type in a message and it'll appear as a sign that they're holding. Um, and, you know, it's kind of obvious now that's essentially a status update and people would reply to it and people would comment on it. Uh, at the time, hadn't really happened. And mm -hmm. I kind of think of that as a band-focused social network because, you know, we, we launched this a few months before the album was released and we ended up getting about 50,000 visitors, unique visitors, um, visiting the site every week to kind of see what other people were posting. There were little sub-communities that, um, that built around it. It was, a, it was a fun experience to build. And as I say, I, th I think of that as a, as a social network in the early days. Was, uh, was Derek Graham there at the time? He was. He was head of sales there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, he was a student of mine at Syracuse. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, great guy. He was in s vice president of sales? Or yes. Yeah. Yeah. I thought he was. Yeah, he was, um, you know, with, with that label, we weren't releasing that many albums. So he had, you know, he had a great opportunity that he could kind of focus and build the campaign for each one. And mm -hmm. he, you know, he hit the road on every project, really, you know, yeah. he went to Seattle and he went to San Francisco and, and he went to Minneapolis, of course, and there were a few other accounts along the way. And, and um, 
yeah. it was, you know, the team worked very well together, as I, as I mentioned, kind of covering both sides of, of the new and old um, spectrum of marketing. Uh, so you just went into like great detail with the, the Seether release. Uh, I'm just curious of all the releases, cause you've had some big names, Ashley Monroe, Ben Watt, John Baptiste for um, album campaigns. What's the campaign you think of most, whether it be like, I nailed this, knocked it out of the park or one that you think of like, eh, maybe I could have done something different. Like what's the one campaign that just stays with you? Um, so I'll talk about the Bob Mold and Sugar release. Um, that we signed at RICO in what was probably 1992. And Bob had, you know, Bob had a great history. He had, he had led Husker Du in the eighties. They were one of the bands that kind of led the way from, you know, pretty serious independent, you know, alternative punk and, and had signed with, you know, one of the first bands like that to sign with a major, um, you know, the band, lasted a certain amount and then kind of the various three personalities just kind of exploded and went, went their own ways. Um, he had two solo albums on Virgin, um, Workbook and Black Sheets of Rain. And then, you know, was coming up with a new power trio concept um, that turned into sugar and that we, you know, we got wind of and we, we, we were in Boston, we went down to New York and, and pitched Bob on working with the label. Um, you know, we hit that right place, right time, because it was, it was a great time for him. Um, this was kind of the early days of 90s alternative market kind of explosion. Um, it, was, it was when the fuse had been lit, if you want to use the explosion analogy. Um, but the, you know, the big boom hadn't happened yet. You know, I mean, we look back on, we even at the time look back a few years later to see how the market had changed because, you know, our album in 92, which was Copper Blue, um, was number one on Billboard Alternative and, you know, hits music had the alternative charts as well. And, and um, we sold several hundred thousand albums and, it was, I believe, the first or biggest independent label release within, you know, to go number one or to be that big um, during that time of the alternative music explosion of the 90s. Um, and then their album a year and a half later, which was File Under Easy Listening, um, we just weren't able to have the same amount of success with. Um, because the market had gotten so much more crowded and, you know, the bigger, the bigger labels had seen everything that was happening in alternative music and, you know, uh, chiefly Nirvana and how they exploded at the time um, and went on a feeding frenzy and started throwing every one of those uh, projects at the wall to see what stuck. Um, and the alternative radio just got a lot harder to work with and it was, harder to have the same impact. Um, so that was, that was, I mean, you know, working with Bob was great. He was a very focused and directed artist um, who, believe me, was making every decision himself um, and working directly with us. And, um, you know, the fact that our team was able to create a project with that kind of impact, um, and get support across the industry um, was it, you know, that was a powerful memory and a great experience. Would you, what would you say the balance is in terms of your side of it from like the marketing perspective versus like the artist? Like what's the balance of like what you want, like what you think will sell well versus what, you th what the artist thinks is going to do well? Or is it's it like a case by case? Well, it's an, it's an interesting question because, um, you know, the, I mean, na it's now 2020, obviously, and the the music market has evolved or changed or grown so exponentially over the last 10 years um, and been kind of atomized and 
you know, made a lot smaller and less concentrated, I guess is what atomized means, um, to where it's a, I mean, it's always been hard to know like, oh, everyone, you know, that'll do great. Everybody will respond to that. Um, that pitch that we all make to each other has always been a bit of a crapshoot. Um, no one knows what's going to work. Um, you know, one friend of mine who was a later guy who worked at RICO um, had been at Geffen DGC during that first Nirvana explosion. Um, and, you know, they didn't see that. They didn't plan on that album selling however many million it did. They, you know, they thought like, oh, this is a, this is a really good record. We, we should probably be able to do well and sell 50,000 of them. Um, but it just, you know, conditions lined up right and everybody responded and the explosion happened and worked. And um, people can say, oh, I think this, I think people, I think this will work. I think um, people will respond to this. It's hard to know how big that will be at any given time. You know, fast forward to now, you know, there's all these different genres, there's all these different channels. Um, you kind of have to, you have to know your path and your channel and understand what will work there. And if it can explode out of that channel into a, a bigger area, more power to you. But, you know, I mean, every artist has to, they have to figure out how they're running their business and, you know, spend effectively to reach one level on the rung and then invest and work more to keep on moving up, up that ladder. But um, I mean, kind of back to your original question, I always want to support the artist's vision. And, you know, we had a call yesterday um, with, a, with a newer client, uh, an artist called Model Child. Um, and we had, you know, we, uh, our team at Missing Peace, we sort of thought through like, well, these are some good initial singles. We will come with this song and then this song. Um, and uh, Danny, who's the main artist in Model Child and his manager kind of threw a curveball, said, you know, we're, we're thinking of this other song. We, you know, we'd like, we'd like that to be one of the singles, one of the focus tracks as well. You know, now, now you have to lay out singles ahead of time and, you know, try to generate buzz for each one of those. Um, again, threw us a curveball. I went back after the call and listened and I thought like, great, this is, they're right. This is a really good song. Um, I, you know, I'm happy to uh, wiggle on our suggested sequence of, of releases to kind of reflect what they want to do as well. Um, that said, you know, our company is built on people with a lot of experience and who have done a lot of these projects and have a sense of what will work in different places. So, you know, people do come to us for expertise and help and guidance in developing that plan. Has there ever been a moment though, where you like just needed to put your foot down where like you talk about the wiggle and, you know, obviously it is about the artist, but has there ever been like an instance of just, based on your expertise of no, this, like an artist comes to you with an idea that you're just like, no, we cannot wiggle on this. Uh, I, or is it just, you know, it's funny. I, to wiggle? Yeah. I look, I can't really think of one. And, and, you know, I mean, those of us like the popular press version of big record companies would be, Oh, that's what they do. Um, mm. You know, the, the record company president will say to the artist, like, no, we're, you know, we're creating this image for you we're releasing this single, we're hiring this video director um, based on their expertise and knowledge. Um, and, you know, when that works, and that certainly does, yes, that does occur. And, and you know, I've been in those meetings with Clive Davis as well, and it's clear, like, no, this is as much his vision as, as the artists of how to, how to bring this to, to market. Um, but in my experience, you know, when it's come down to it, I, it was, you know, it's funny. I'm talking about Bob Mould. I mentioned morphine before. There was a summer, which I think was 94 or something like that, when both those guys turned down offers to play the first Lollapalooza tour. Um, and, you know, we thought like, well, that's, that's an opportunity to 
reach audience and frankly tell records that we're disappointed that you're turning down, but you got to run your own career and we have to be true to that. And we have to respect these decisions that you're making. And, you know, Bob's still doing his thing and just, you know, he just released a new song last week and he's still, he's still working on his own vision. Um, so before becoming involved with Outpost and the Burbs, um, how are you involved in live music? Um, I had been to a lot of Outpost and the Burbs shows. Um, <laughs> I spent a lot of years before I had kids kind of going out every night and being in the scene and, you know, knowing every band and seeing every band. And, and um, when, when the opportunity to book the Outpost came up, um, A, it felt like a chance to get involved in a side of the industry that I hadn't been super involved with in the past. Um, you know, I mean, I booked shows in college. I was on the concert committee. I booked a great John Cale show. That was fun. Um, and, you know, did that a few times and always, again, was working with artists, was helping them to develop tour plans. Um, you know, what's the overall touring strategy? was in touch with the various venues with with the agencies to some extent but you know i kind of welcomed the chance to get involved in a different part of the business as well and you know again it's just it's something i do as a volunteer on the side the 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 whole series is you know it's been going for 30 years 32 now run completely by volunteers none of us gets paid in any way you know we we um try to make sure that the shows are going to make money so that the artists can get paid. And, and then, you know, the rest of those revenues go to support our local community efforts. And, you know, we have a monthly soup kitchen that, that we've been supporting and, and we have a great group of volunteers who, you know, work with the soup kitchen, help doing all the shows and, you know, keep, keep things running behind the scenes. But I was kind of psyched to, get more involved in the live music side of the equation um, for as much reason as anything else, because that's kind of where a lot of the action is right now. And, you know, record sales aren't where they were a couple of decades ago for most artists. Um, and so like, I mean, a lot of the folks that I book and a lot of the kind of mid-level middle-class artists are doing most of their business and earning most of their revenue out on the road. So, um, you know, I was happy to get involved in that side of it. Um, the site lists that uh, Outpost and the Bribs has had over 500 concerts with internationally well-known folk artists. Um, since you've joined in 2015, has there been an effort to have other genres represented? Obviously, I know it's a church, so you're probably not going to be doing death metal, but uh, any like thought of you know introducing like acoustic rock or maybe even like jazz trios or other genres yeah and that's something we take seriously and and i kind of um i eventually uh, i mean i originally went in uh, at the outpost with um my partner who owns missing peace michael um but then he you know he couldn't really continue to um put the time in over the the first year or so um, but, you know, we made the point early on of like, yes, you can just keep on doing the same thing. Um, and that's cool. Um, but we're not the guys for that. I moved to Montclair. I, don't know, I guess I was in my early 30s or something like that. Um, and had certainly been to Outpost shows over the years, but hadn't really that much um, in the last several years because, um, yeah, it was sort of it was working a certain lane well, but not really stretching that far outside that lane. Um, and luckily, you know, we were, there were some outside factors um, that allowed us more flexibility. One chiefly is that we moved back into our original space, which is bigger. Um, so therefore we could uh, book what were potentially bigger shows. And, you know, so, Therefore, we're able to um, put on some shows with, with bigger draws that, you know, so was able to bring the Jayhawks to town and, and Nick Lowe and, and um, you know, one of the, 
a smithereen show it was actually one of the first smithereen shows after after Patanisio died um it was originally going to be a classic smithereen show but you know circumstances intervened in the middle of those discussions um but i mean our goal was never well we're going to completely change everything up because mm -hmm. you know those guys had done an amazing run over 30 years and and i wanted to continue to honor those traditions and still book shows that that the classic outpost audience which we've referred to from time to time we're still going to respond to um but also you know open up some new directions and so you know one point was was um i started a series called new voices which the whole pitch was look you've tr you've trusted us you've you've come to all these shows over the years so please try this you know this newer artist who you may not be familiar with but we were very much you know specifically saying to our audience um since you like you've liked all those other artists so over all the years um give these folks a chance so you know that was um robert ellis one fall and carl blau and um I think Laura Cantrell did that series um, one season. Um, but yeah, I mean, to your point, uh, David, about, about genre diversity as well, um, I'm, you know, I actually, before everything happened this year, I had a number of um, pretty exciting offers out for some jazz artists, some R&B artists. Um, you know, we want we to take that seriously, um, continue to, book a range of a range of projects within within the, the room there so you mentioned like having artists that come back um to the burbs and i know they sell memberships like tiered packages for tickets and what have you um assuming normal circumstances let's assume there's no covid what would you say the balance of artists that you previously have had or have been to burbs in the past 30 years versus like how many you're introducing each year i haven't thought about it that much but i will i guess i will default to um trying to introduce more rather than staying in the same lane um primarily because you know um we want to reach new audiences as well and we want to you know we want to build up past you know the group of fans that we were reaching say five years ago and the way to do that is to book diverse voices and book a range of artists and styles uh, within our within our area um, you know I'd love to work in more size rooms uh, you know we uh, you know we, we um, actually had a great plan that got put on hold to do a pretty significantly bigger production. Um, it would have been happening, I think it would have been happening this coming weekend, actually. Oh. <laughs> mm. <laughs> it was some of the last offers I put out um, in what, early March, right? Um, mm. But, you know, we, we want to bring a great range of, of voices and artists to, you know, I mean, the thing about living in this area, um, you know, in our, counties and you know where you guys are and where we are is that um there's you know there's such a diversity of people around and you know people we see in schools and parent meetings and and in the grocery store and you know i want to be that for as many people as we can uh just to clarify the the new room you're talking about is the 800 person max capacity church correct correct yes okay yes. i just want to make sure i had my buildings right which was also our original room right um, okay it, it was an interesting sequence um which i honestly don't know all the details of but i believe the series you know started out in a small room in that church it's the first congregational church in downtown montclair um there's a room that can hold uh, a max of 135 people. Um, and then the main sanctuary room, uh, you know, uh, the capacity is, is 800. And then, you know, you can do things outdoors and 
there's, you know, we've done, I we did a show at the women's club in downtown Montclair and uh, we do one every spring at the Van Vleck house and gardens, which is a beautiful spot for an outdoor show. You know, I mean, my, my background and I, I kind of have said this to the, the uh, outpost folks as well is, is um, you know, having grown up in New Orleans and having gone to a lot of music festivals, you know, I just want to kind of see people sitting around in the sun and sitting on blankets and enjoying an artist that they didn't know that much, but, you know, they love discovering them and seeing happy kids running around as part of the activity. And, you know, the more we can do that, the, you know, the more satisfying it is for us. What about the 800 cap room? What discussions have you guys had since COVID came out? And obviously you can't have shows now. Mm -hmm. Let's say you can have shows that allow 20%, 25% capacity mm -hmm. at some point. Um, can you do that? Um, so obviously we are dependent on the um, administration of the church uh, as the first folks who are making those decisions of, are we opening up our room at all? Um, but we have a great production team who, you know, we actually have a subcommittee right now that's that I think we're calling our COVID reopening committee and they're thinking through all those logistics. And it's a, it's a, it's a luxury for us that we can produce shows that, you know, don't need, they don't need to have five, 600 attendees to, you know, to make money for the artists um, that we can do a slightly smaller audience. Um, it still feels great within that spot, within the room. Um, it's a large space, but it's still intimate. And if, if people are only sitting in the main pews, I think like that's maybe 300 people. So there's the balconies and the temporary seating as well. But so yes, we're certainly looking at what all those options will be. Um, you know, whether it's seating every other row, for example. Um, but our bottom line is that we're, we're not going to be the first folks to open, to reopen. Um, you know, part of it is there's not a, there's not a, um, an, an economic imperative because we're a volunteer organization. Um, no one, no one's out of work because Outpost in the Burbs isn't, isn't open. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, we're, we just want to kind of gauge the experience this fall of other houses reopening, what they're doing, make sure we are being absolutely um, locked in on our safety practices. Um, you know, frankly, we have an all volunteer team and that means it's a lot of older folks as well. You know, our, our volunteers aren't generally in their teens and 20s. They're, they're community folks who've been around for a while. And, and so, you know, we need to be considerate of that and, and, and make sure that we're running a safe environment for everyone. In a way though, as a marketing person, you could probably, when it does come to open, with the type of artists that you have, almost make it like this is a very special, extra intimate show. You know, mm -hmm. we're only gonna sell 25% of tickets anyway, which is probably where it's going to start 20 or 20% and trying to yeah. figure out how to make it so that maybe you can get, let's say it was $20 a ticket in the past, $25 a ticket now. So just again, that because you're nonprofit, but you still need to pay the bands, as you mentioned, or the, or the artists and are the production people, are they um, volunteers as well? The lighting person, the sound person, or are yes. they also? Yeah, they all are. They all are. Okay. You know, that's I mean, helpful. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. And, and uh, I got forwarded an email yesterday um, by somebody who was asking about, you know, uh, just a refund on one of the rescheduled shows that they, they weren't then able to attend. And this note was from a, you know, a fan, you know, who I'd consider more of an alternative music fan than, than a, um, um, you know, than a singer songwriter, acoustic music fan. He was, originally was writing about the Robin Hitchcock show that we will end up rescheduling, I believe. Um, 
but he was mentioning some other artists that he would love to see the opportunity. Um, I think he put it as to not stand in a club in Brooklyn for five hours. Um, you know, because I mean, look, I mean, all of us who kind of came up through this music world have gotten to a certain point in adulthood where, you know, it's enjoyable to sit in a beautiful room and experience the, the acoustics as, as well as the, um, as well as just, just hearing the band. So, and he mentioned, you know, Yola Tango and Wire and, and artists like that. And he specifically mentioned like, you know, I'm paying whatever, $75 or something like that for that club experience. I'd, I'd much rather pay a, a rate, a higher rate like that and give it to you guys to, for, a, for a fabulous show in, in this environment. So yeah, that's something we take very seriously. Are, are the deals you guys offer, are they flat guarantees for most artists or is um, it like? I am almost always um, in guarantee plus, plus uh, backend door, um, which we, we try to do very fairly. And, you know, my experience in working with artists and working with managers, you know, I've never, you know, and, and, and also, again, the fact that, the outpost isn't there to squeeze every dollar out of every show that we can, That you know, that's not our mission because, you know, we're, we, we're not paying people and, and, you know, I mean, we have to pay rent on the room and we have to pay our insurance and our promotion and, and, you know, buy a reasonable catering uh, layout for all the artists. But, but after that, we're a nonprofit organization. So um, I want to pay the artists fairly. Um, we're, again, and largely it's because, you know, working in a larger room, um, we're, not, we're not necessarily able to come with what an artist would consider an amazing guarantee, but I want to give them a fair guarantee and let them have full participation when the show does well. So therefore, we're, we're largely um, guarantee plus incentive booking. Have you had feedback from agents at this point as to, okay, when we come back to doing shows, that has to change? just because it's gonna be harder to put on shows that drove the same amount of revenue because you won't be able to fit. The, the gross potential is lower just because of what's going on, so. It's true, and, and actually there's a, there's, a, you know, there's a contract that, um, that we were actually working on before the shutdown, you know, which had a level, a series of incentives built in. You know, if you sell this 100, you get X bonus and um, you know this agency that is in in the business of making their the best deal for their clients their artists and has you know has the wherewithal to hire the lawyers um, tweaked one point of wording in the contract which at the time you know I it wasn't a point of contention for us but it wasn't something I was taking that seriously which is you know we'll have X bonus on this level of, you know, this number of ticket sales or sell out whichever comes first, which ultimately means that, yes, we're actually, we may end up selling fewer tickets, but it'll still be a sellout. So we're, we're ending up agreeing to that because uh, again, you know, I, I don't want to drive too hard bargains at the artist's expense because this is, this is where they're making their living at this point. Mm -hmm. Do you have radius clauses? Yeah, it's pretty standard. We will ask for, um, we will ask for 30 days, no other performances, obviously in Northern New Jersey or in New York City, at least a discussion about that. 30 days before and after? Uh, typically, I'm a little out of practice. Um, typically 30 days before our show. We, okay. we don't want to see others. I don't. You know, somebody's going to play in Tarrytown or, you know, I mean, a William Patterson on, even um, a little after, you know, if I, if, if I, I don't always have a radius clause, I will at least ask for, will like give me a promotion window. Like, you know, don't announce your, this other show until we're pretty far along in our own sales. Can you explain that what the mis missing piece, what your company does? Sure. Yeah. So missing piece group is a, PR and marketing agency, a slight hybrid company because in addition to those, we, uh, we are an artist management company. We manage a few artists. 
within our operation. And we are a record label that we will put out a few releases per year based on the premise that all of those functions that I just mentioned, managing marketing for artists, managing artists, releasing records as a label are by and large the same set of functions. Um, Mm -hmm. Understanding how to build a marketing campaign for an artist, uh, you know, doing press and, you know, rolling out a whole PR campaign to support a release or to support a tour. Uh, The company's been around for, this this is our 11th year now. It was, as I mentioned, it was started by uh, a friend of mine who's in Montclair, Michael Crumper, who um, we had been friends sort of in the industry that he, you know, he had headed up marketing for different labels, both independent and major labels. He was at Mercury for a while. He was at Atlantic. Um, He was general manager of Artemis Records with, uh, with Danny Goldberg. He was at Razor and Tie running marketing for a while. Um, so we had a, we both had a similar um, set of both experience and also kind of viewpoints on the industry. And um, I joined up, you know, after about a year and a half of Michael having had the company um, to build out the overall marketing services and label services practice and operation within within the agency um really based on the strategy that we were both seeing that you know the shift was going the power shift was going directly to artists that it it was becoming um it was becoming possible to work without a lot of label support obviously you know with TuneCore and CD Baby and different distribution options opening up, it was becoming logistically possible to release music. Um, but that, you know, there's not really point in releasing music without building a support campaign and bringing in a support team behind that to make it worth one's while. So, you know, we've built, we've built the practice over, over the years. Um, Again, not necessarily focused on any one particular kind of music, but you know, working with both independent artists and doing label services for them, as well as working with a number of um, labels, both small and large, um, management companies, publishers, um, to where the company is roughly two-thirds focused on PR and press campaigns. And then my side, my side of the operation is, is essentially the other third um, where we're providing like full label services, doing digital marketing. Um, You know, I'm project managing a lot of releases and I'm essentially label manager for hire for a few different, both, both some independent labels and a number of independent artists. So it's been, you know, it's been a lot of fun and it keeps us on our toes and staying ahead of the curve in, in the digital world is, you know, you have to read a lot you have to pay a lot of attention. You have to listen to a lot of podcasts, for example. Um, but so, yeah, so, so to your question of, of uh, how we responded on March the 16th, I believe it was, my daughter pointed out, wow, it was really the last normal day of this year was a Friday the 13th, which is interesting. <laughs> um, but, you know, and actually, again, as a smaller company that is owned by one person and managed by and large by him and I help, um, you know, we made the decision early on, you know, look, we're, we're just going to shut down our office. We're just going to have everybody work remotely. Our, our first discussion was, we'll try this for the next 10 days and then we'll see where we are. And that was on about March 10th, I guess. Um, I believe that was the Tuesday or something like that. And so we said we would do it for a couple of weeks and see where we are. And obviously, you know, it's now three months later and we're still working remotely and we're still all, all working from home. But, you know, we have taken the, the team aspect very seriously. And, you know, we do a daily call where we're all checking in with each other and, and trying to collaborate as much as we can. Um, and then working with the artists, um, you know, that first question, 
the first couple of questions were, whoa, what do I do now? And do I still follow through? Do I still release this music? Um, and by and large, artists have chosen to go ahead and follow through. And certainly, I mean, all of our campaigns that were kind of in the middle and already up and running, pretty much we've seen through. There were a couple of projects that were a bit on the tail end um, where the artists had to, well, A, they had to come off the road. So, you know, their income stream went from something to nothing, unfortunately, um, quite quickly. Um, so, you know, they, they just said like, well, we're just not able to continue working with, with you guys because, you know, ultimately we're a fee-for-service company. We're working with artists and, and clients, you know, on a per campaign basis, which is usually four months, sometimes more, where we can really make it work. Um, and, you know, we, could, we couldn't argue with, with that, you know. Um, we're not going to force anybody to, to hire us when it just, when they can't support that, you know. Um, I, I want to be cognizant of, of the, you know, kind of dire situation that, that this, this has put a lot of independent artists in. Um, but at the same time, again, a lot of what we're doing is digital. Um, certainly all the digital music services still exist. Um, the traffic is up. Um, they're all continuing to be programmed. We still need to work with uh, all of those programmers. And, you know, we're in there fighting for playlist slots and, and artist features. Um, on the press side, the environment's gotten pretty challenging. And, you know, media, because media in general, they're facing a lot of economic um, pressures uh, to where, you know, a lot of our media partners will hear about large, large uh, sets of layoffs and furloughs and whatever with a lot of media that are, um, you know, working within the music space. Um, and then obviously in the last couple of weeks, the discussion has switched as well. And, you know, Blackout Tuesday was uh, a week ago today, um, which certainly, you know, I give the organizers credit for pointing out that this is not business as usual for making everybody stop and pause and think. And, um, you know, we certainly had a lot of discussions and worked with a lot of clients. Um, and all agreed that a lot of day-to-day -day activities should be kind of paused, that, you know, now's not the time to be launching a, you know, frankly, silly little fan engagement program of like, you know, submit this photo on this hashtag, tag to this um, song theme, um, which, you know, we, will, we would work out a good plan, but it just didn't feel like this is not what people are thinking about right now. And again, you know, we want to be cognizant of that. Um, but, you know, so our challenge and certainly over the last couple of months and, and moving forward is what opportunities are there now for artists and how do we, how do we still make an impact and how do we, how do we get music out to people through slightly changed channels, you know, that there's, there's obviously not the live music channel for the time being. So we have to pivot and come up with other creative approaches and we're pushing on, pushing each other on every day. Um, no, I remember going to the, uh, to the Burbs about 15, 20 years ago, actually. My wife had a, uh, an acoustic, an acapella group, oh. all women. And I think we did a New Year's Eve in the church and we did, uh, do you guys affiliated with going out to Morristown to the um, the park out there? Morris, um, Lewis Morris Park? There's a series in Woodbridge that my predecessor is now booking. Um, ah. But yeah, so back then, right, we were involved in a New Year's Eve show. Right. There was that um, First Night Montclair. Right. That, you know, I mean, I think there was an Al Stewart show and might have been a Roger McGuinn show right. um, that mm -hmm. we were involved with. Um, a lot of that has kind of cut back and, you know, everybody's mm -hmm. kind of doing their own thing at this point. Right. I'm right. kind of staying off holidays just because right. 
you know, right. it's just easier. But it's, you know, it's so much fun to work with. And, you know, I mean, yeah, look, first time, you know, I mean, I remember going to shows in some of the, in the smaller rooms and, you know, there were a couple of Texas people that my brother, brother-in-law knew and we went and, you know, I saw Richard Thompson there in 2005 and then worked, worked for three or four years to get him back. And, you know, since he's actually based in the area now here. So that right. was great to kind of come up with, come up with a great show with him last year that we tied in with um, the Montclair Film Festival. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're always just coming up with fun, fun, different things we can do. Um, I, I, I guess I should put in a plug for our own podcast at, uh, at Outpost in the Burbs, which we're now um, certainly building around every concert series. Um, we've built a podcast series called Inside the Outpost, where mm-hmm. we're interviewing each of the artists. We've, we've done it for three seasons now, um, which now the third season is on a pretty significant hold. But um, it's nice enough that the artists can uh, obviously take time to do an interview, but also um, can give us permission to include one live recording, mm-hmm. so one, one song from each of the concerts, so we can kind of bring, bring the sound of the outpost out to the mm-hmm. rest of the world. Mm-hmm. We used to have a... Uh... Well, the guy is still in the neighborhood, but he doesn't do it anymore. But he lived in this log house over here. I mean, Pines Lake up in Wayne. And he used to take like um, an artist that was performing the night before. And then he'd have him in the living room the next day. And he'd charge everybody X amount and bring a pot, you know, potluck yeah. stuff and so on. And they'd get um, 75, 100. Yeah. And I've, I've, I've kind of found out about everybody who's doing that now. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when I finally, I don't know, when I move, move upstate and, and, you know, move, move out of the area here and get fed up with, the, with paying um, mm-hmm. Essex County taxes, um, you know, I, I wanted to have one of those series as well. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay. I think we have uh, enough, right, David? David? Yes. Which, which David? Now it is time to end the show. David McNally, thank you very much for booking booking our guest, John Hammond, Missing Peace Group. Anytime. You did a great job. Yeah. Yes. Dr. Esteban Marconi, thank you very much. Well, thank you. And um, I'm glad you're still awake. Yes, I, I am awake. I, I, uh, after this, I will tell you what happened to me yesterday. But, uh, and I will tell you why I was asleep. But for those of us listening, you don't care about my sleep habits. All you care about is at the end of every show, we do not say hello. At no. every show, what do we say, Dr. Esteban? Avidistain. We say, adios! Bonsoir.
never would 